This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined by, of course, me, Sam, today, and Imran Gulam Hussainwala, the trustee of Open Banking. Welcome, Imran. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. I'm going to help you with the surname, Gulam Hussainwala. Gulam Hussainwala. We've got to start with a bit of deference. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. I'm pleased to say it's a little bit cooler today, although you were stuck on the tube for a while. So if you're a little bit flustered, we'll let it go. A little hot under the collar. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Obviously, you and I have known each other for a while, and I knew you back in your former role as the global financial technology leader at Ernst & Young. And you've been in the new role as the trustee of Open Banking for just over two years, about I think since April 2017. A big role, critically important to the UK financial services ecosystem, but also the global one. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and the lead up to this enormous role that you've got today? Yeah, well, I did decide that I was going to focus all my efforts on this role because I passionately believe that open banking has the potential to be one of the most transformative things to happen in retail financial services, frankly, over the last couple of decades. And yes, I had a great and exciting time as the fintech lead in EY. And, you know, one of the things that that allowed me to do is just see so many different innovations going on in the fintech space globally. And, you know, you could almost not move for tripping over some fantastic buzzwords, whether it's AI, blockchain, peer-to-peer lending, crowdfunding, alternative lending. There was so much stuff going on. But for me, it always came back to data. And unless the data was able to move in the first place, unless customers were able to access their data in a more convenient manner, I was actually wondering whether some of those other fantastic innovations would really come to happen. And then when you look at open banking, it has a crucial thing going for it, in addition to that kind of underlying structural factor of data, which is that there's also legislation compelling it. And European legislation in the form of PSD2 and GDPR are actually the enabling blocks that allow open banking to happen. So yes, it was too fascinating an opportunity to pass up. Awesome. I love that. You're in a position upon hire looking down at all the global innovation in an incredible convening organization like EY, and it all comes back to data. We subscribe to that heavily. As you probably know, we're just involved in the Tate Private of Dun & Bradstreet, a business a portfolio firm we're incredibly proud of already, and the opportunity is enormous. So I'm looking forward to getting into the nitty-gritty on the data front with you. Prior to the Open Banking Group, you were uh, Oliver Wyman. You've had a stint, I think, uh, as an entrepreneur. You're doing some investment advisory stuff at the moment as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your historic career? For sure. Actually, I did engineering at uni. I'd take it back to that. And the reason I do take it back to that is because fundamentally, I think that's what I enjoy doing the most. And actually, even though I've done lots of different things over the course of my career so far, actually, what I'm doing now is frankly the job of an engineer. There's no steam engines or any of the kind of things that I dealt with when I was at university. But APIs are kind of a lot more fun. 
And really the kind of the underlying theme that cuts through all of the different things I've done is financial services. So I started off as a strategic advisor in financial services with Oliver Wyman, which was a huge amount of fun and a very entrepreneurial company actually at that time, growing 25% plus per annum. Then I moved over to the buy side as an investor, again, focused on financial services. And in particular, we call them balance sheet light in those days when I was at Bridgepoint. But really, that was effectively the precursor to fintech. And then more principal investing. And then, yes, you're right, I had a go also putting together a startup. And that's really what opened my eyes to the power of fintech, because myself and a guy I used to work with at Resolution Investors, we had some good ideas and we decided, wouldn't it be fun to put together a company? And six months later, for less than, I don't know, £400,000, we managed to put together a fully functioning credit lender, fully regulated, fully financed equity and debt. And we had an MVP. And I'm proud to say that business is still going. It's not turned into the unicorn that we thought it was going to be on day one, but we're just finishing capital raise at the moment through Cedars, which is another great fintech story. Very excited about that. But I tell you, one thing it tells me is the work of an entrepreneur is really hard. There is no such thing as an overnight success. And I challenge anyone to not put seven years against one of those hockey stick business plans. What's the name of the lending business? It's called Commuter Club, but I'm not here to pitch it. Although if you fancy investing in it, it is on Cedars at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly pitched. I saw Commuter Club in your biography. I'll be honest with you, I thought it was an innovative way to get to work. So does it have a component to that, a lending against travel stuff? Oh, absolutely. So there are a couple of things about Commuter Club that are kind of interesting, not relevant to Commuter Club itself, but to FinTech more broadly. One of them is the ability to straddle sectors. So what Commuter Club does is it allows people to get to work easily by financing season tickets. And the clever thing it did was it turned what was previously been seen by the industry as an unsecured loan into a secured loan. And that's alchemy in financial services sense. But the way it did that was by really getting under the skin of the transport sector. So as far as I'm aware, it's one of the only companies in the UK that is both regulated by the FCA and the Department for Transport. And it's, I think, a precursor to convergence, convergence of financial services into other sectors. You know, it's a practical example of that theme that people often talk about, which is, you know, people don't get up in the morning to get a mortgage they actually want to buy the house. The mortgage is a facilitator. The car loan is a facilitator. The making the payments when you're looking at something online is the facilitator. And therefore, financial services should not just be an adjunct to other kind of goods and services and experiences, but frankly, a supporter. And that's mm. that's kind of what Commuter Club does. The other thing I love about it, it's a loan that actually saves you money. And we tend not to really think about things like that. We tend to think of financial services as more of the taker rather than the give. But this, of course, allows people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford an annual season ticket to spread the payments. And they get the majority of the savings for themselves. Some of it stays with the company. But fundamentally, it helps you save money. And that was fascinating. Because when we took that to the FCA and they said, can you help us understand your affordability criteria? Well, the affordability is negative in the sense that people can actually afford more by taking out this loan. Mm, mm. So it's broken a a whole number of barriers in in different ways and a huge amount of fun. And frankly, for me, a humbling experience. Just got to see how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, that empathy, I think, for anyone that's built a business is a unique, I think, experience that people can take into all aspects of their career going forwards, particularly, I guess, in a consulting context when you're at EY. Well, I'd go on, actually, to say, and particularly in open banking, where we have 
circa 300 regulated entities mm, mm. in the ecosystem, the vast, vast majority of which are small fintechs. Mm. You said something earlier, I don't want to gloss over it, and I'm looking at Paul, the genius behind the podcast, because I, I see it as a, a caption. You talked about engineering, and Imran is an engineer of the fourth industrial revolution. I, <laughs> I really like that. Let's talk a little bit about the open banking journey to date. I've been tuning in to a lot of your updates on social media. I think last time it was really front of mind was when the Chancellor was talking about it at the Innovate Finance Global Summit. I looked at your update. I think one of the last ones posted was in May, where you talked about having 132 regulated providers using the infrastructure. And you were at 96%, I think, of successful API calls. Those stats are already incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about what the evolution has been like and have we reached a tipping point? No, it's too early to say that we've reached the tipping point, but it's an absolutely fair question to ask. Just to give you a kind of a state of play of open banking at the moment, what we're really doing is heads down for September the 14th. September the 14th is actually when part two of PSD2 comes into force. It's something called the RTS. And it's a crucial deadline across all of Europe. And it'll be fascinating to see where our European colleagues get to. But I'm very confident that in the UK, we will have a large number of banks using the open banking API to meet their PSD2 requirements. When you say large number, what is that? Mm, That's an interesting point because we have a mandate, or rather I have a mandate delivered to me by the Competition Markets Authority that means that I can require the nine largest banks in order to implement the open banking APIs. But what we've been doing over the last year or so is actually opening the doors, if you like, to non-CMA9 banks to voluntarily take up and implement the open banking APIs. And that's really, really encouraging. It means that the whole of the UK is moving to one common standard in order to meet its PSD2 requirements and allow fintechs and customers' ability to access their data more easily. And it's a phenomenal step forward, if you think about it, because the nine largest banks were required to do this as a result of an investigation into competition in retail banking. And this is one of those things that was intended to level the playing field. But there is so much promise that comes about through open banking that sits above and beyond the regulatory requirements that other banks are voluntarily picking up the remediation that was mandated on the nine largest banks Mm. because they see so much value in it. So that's been a really important proof point for me. Could we get non-CMA9 banks to voluntarily implement these standards? And we can. We now have more non-CMA9 banks signed up. I think it's probably double the number of CMA9 banks at the moment who are implementing it and should be ready by September of this year. Fantastic. And forgive me for asking a leading question, um, probably as fiercely patriotic as you are. How unique is that? How unique is the UK being setting that one standard? So open banking is now looking increasingly like a global phenomenon. And in Europe, we have a specific case of open banking, which I call mandated. But what PSD2 and GDPR don't do is they don't require a standard. And they're also technology agnostic. So in the UK, we decided very, very early on that we wanted customers to be able to access their data and execute payments using APIs. And that's kind of an obvious engineering decision. But of course, 
you know, banks that were not embracing this could, in theory, have met their requirements by putting a memory stick in the post. We didn't want that. Clearly, that wasn't going to work. And we absolutely decided that we were going to determine what technology is going to be used. And then secondly, determine that it's a standard. And the standards is really important because when you have a standard, you have one single plug that any new entrant, big or small, can plug into and suddenly get access to 90. Originally, it was kind of, I would say, 90, 95% of the UK market. Now, with the non-CMA9 signing up, it feels like it's 95 to 100% of the UK market. Wow. So it's one standard that allows everyone to connect to. Very, very important for competition. So, you know, it's increasingly understood now that one important lever for increasing competition is to allow data portability. But without interoperability, you can actually make the situation worse. And by creating a standard, what we do is we guarantee interoperability. That's really compelling. The other thing that I'm very excited about is that the Irish market has also adopted the UK standard. And in the context of Brexit, I think that's a real vote of confidence, not only in the relationship between the two countries, but also in the quality of the standard itself. Then when you look further afield, we've got many other countries that are on their open banking journeys. Australia, I would argue, is probably the most advanced. But countries as far afield as Mexico to New Zealand, Bahrain to South Africa, Canada, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, dare I say at the US, are yeah. all looking at open banking. And the UK model, absolutely, if not you know, being built on and endorsed, is certainly being considered. That's a really, really interesting point. So here at Motive Partners, and specifically our innovation, our Motive Labs, with our group of international banks, we built and defined, ultimately it was a regulatory sandbox to begin with, for a UK bank to be regulatory compliant, but it really has become an innovation sandbox, allowing international banks to connect with fintechs through it, to test data anonymously, and then over time to integrate. It was interesting seeing how all the international banks from the Middle East, from South America, how quick they were to jump on top of what was ultimately driving it, which was open banking. And I saw in your uh, in your biography, you're also now an advisor to Portage, the investment management firm in Canada run by Paul Demare, who we know well and has actually been on this podcast. I and I guess part one of the question is, how much are those international regulators and international banks looking to the UK? How exportable is this blueprint that we've created? I would argue tremendously exportable. And I hope we come to touch on it, not just to other retail banking industries, small business and retail and consumer across the world, but also to other sectors, even here within the UK. I think there's a really interesting phenomena going on at the moment, which is it's very clear to me that regulators want open banking to happen in their markets. They feel it will drive more competition and more innovation. And I would agree with them on that. The question that they arrive at very quickly is, how do they mandate it? Should they mandate it? And if they should, how do they do it? And in the UK, we benefit from two important pillars of requirement. One is the European directive, so PSD2. But then the other is the CMA order. And the CMA order is fundamentally where the open banking implementation entity gets its mandate from. And I think we've proven to ourselves that that has been a very important cornerstone of being able to get as far as we have done in our open banking journey. And the question is, is around the world whether or not they emulate the same degree of mandate 
and the same emphasis on implementation as we've done here in the UK. And this isn't wasted on the banks, because while governments and regulators think about this, many banks will typically think, well, this is coming, you know, which wasn't the case here in the UK, because there was no precedent that had been set anywhere. But we now have a precedent in Mm. the UK. And so banks across the world say, well, this is kind of inevitable. And you've always got to draw it back to that fundamental principle, which I think is now part of the zeitgeist, which is that the data belongs to the customer. You know, the data the financial institution holds on the customer belongs to the customer and not to the financial institution. And that is a point of principle that you can apply to any country and any sector, bar a couple of notable exceptions. But but that seems to be what's driving this. This is as much a consumer right mm. as it is anything else. So, of course, when it feels as inevitable as that, then the banks try and get ahead of the curve. And so I think that's why we're all seeing banks being a lot more proactive around the world, because they're effectively thinking, if we can demonstrate to regulators that we can do this on our own, then maybe you don't need regulation to enforce it. And you're seeing a really interesting dynamic occurring there. As a result that you see, particularly if I you know, select a couple of geographies, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, where the regulators have leaned in hard to the banks to build APIs, but they've not mandated and they crucially, unlike Europe, have not enforced it to be done on a contractless basis. The APIs have been built, but no one's using them. Okay. So again, you have you know an interesting dynamic. Do the regulators then sit back, wait to see if the market develops? And if it doesn't, then come in and actually start making some mandated requirements. Did you know Motive Partners has a weekly newsletter? It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. I'm jumping a little bit, but a lot of what you've just said, I I can't help but draw a parallel to something that maybe it's because we've just released an article on it on LinkedIn. But you talk about being ahead of the curve, you talk about proactivity, you talk about multi-stakeholders, you talk about sector straddling earlier on and, and a vision for other sectors, and you talk about regulatory oversight. Those are all things that at the moment are around the conversation of Libra, Facebook's digital currency, cryptocurrency, that they are coordinating with 27 other members. They're structuring it in what seems like a fairly appropriate way with their associations and wallets and independence and so on. What's your view on it? And what do you think the impact of the big technology firms are for financial services? It's absolutely fascinating what the guys at Facebook have done and the and the firework that they've lit. It's very hard to put this stuff back in the box once it's come out, particularly for a global company like that. But, you know, I, I'll give you my views on that specifically. But my kind of preamble into it is the lessons that we've learned from open banking is that you've got to put the customer right at the heart of what you're doing. You start with the customer and you work out. So, you know, the first thing that I did when I got enrolled at the open banking implementation entity is not pick up the rule book and figure out how do you build an API that meets the 700 odd pages of PSD2 requirements. We said, what are customers going to use this for? What are the actual use cases that are going to underpin this? Because we're not here just to build the plumbing and then have no one use it. We actually want to build things that enable innovation in areas that are of value to customers. So the team actually sat down and pulled together approximately 75 use cases for open banking. Wow. And they range from, you know, the mundane to just aggregating your accounts into a single app to stripping out the kind of inconvenience that you have when you're at that part in a mortgage application where you're asked to try and find three months worth of bank 
statements and you're kind of scanning and all this kind of stuff, you know, all the way to some really exciting concierge type applications that can help you find better deals in credit cards and mortgages, pools mm. of water and energy and utilities. So we've really started with all that, try to understand what are the problems that we, we can try and solve and then work out from there. And, and open banking is just an enabling technology. We're thinking, what does the enabling technology need to do such that the other fintechs can build off it? So from the word go, the consensual element of what we've done has been enormous. In my steering group alone, by order of the CMA, I have to have approximately 25 odd different stakeholders there, ranging from consumers to different types of fintechs, different kinds of banks, different kinds of regulators. And then the stakeholder group that helps put together the standards, by some measures, is 1,500 strong. And as you said earlier, we've got something like 125 regulated entities, over 300 actively participate in the ecosystem. And it's that kind of sense of convening that's really, really important to us in open banking to make it all work. And in terms of timelines, as we kind of roll into September, that's when the implementations are finished. And that's when I think the fintechs will have real confidence to build real propositions on top of it and take it to market. Mm. So again, we've learned about how long these things are. So if I then translate some of those kind of learnings to Facebook Libra, I do think it is absolutely crucial to put the customer right at the heart of this. And, you know, has that been done? It probably has, but it, it doesn't seem to be that the announcements that have made thus far have really led with the consumer. They've more led with governance and funding and Switzerland and who's involved and who's not involved. And actually the end user, to some extent, hasn't really been talked about that much. I know there is a compelling kind of proposition out there, which is about moving money cross-border, but I've yet really to understand, you know, how it can help. There's a lot of confusion as to, is this more for cross-border payments or is it more for the unbanked? And I'd like to see a lot more clarity around that. And then, of course, in terms of consensus, from the very outset, we have worked with regulators. You cannot not work with regulators. And that seems to have been somewhat missing, mm. at least from what I'm picking up in the mood music at the moment. So we'll see where Facebook get to with this. I've no doubt at all that they are going to go live with something, but it'd be very interesting to see what the adoption is around it. The timing is crucial as well. I think yeah. that fundamentally consumers, users, understanding of data how it's used and their data rights is changing. Mm. We're at a tipping point, a tipping point that could take a number of years to play out, but it could well be that a social media platform and a payment mechanism aren't best bedfellows from a privacy point of view. Yeah, very true. I mean, it's fascinating to see the composition of the 27 other people around the table from the Ubers of the world where we do interact with effectively a digital currency anyway every day through to the MasterCards and the Anderson Horowitzes who have big consumer-focused portfolios. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, particularly as I know their aspirations are to bring 100 people, 100 members onto the sort of governing body, each of which are going to pay a approximate $10 million to put a billion dollars into the bank to fund the whole thing. So it's a lofty ambition, but you're right. I think once it's out of the box, it's very hard to get back. And they're already being challenged by regulators all over the world to make their argument. And um, I'm kind of excited about where it will I, I am too. I desperately want to know where it ends up. I mean, I think there are some big decisions. Is Facebook Libra about payments or is it about data? That's probably the most important question I'd like to understand first. If it is about payments, I think that's fascinating. One of the things that many of those participants have in common, I think, is 
the world feels like it's looking for an alternative to cards. Yeah. You know, when you look at many of the online players, particularly in the developed markets, they are working with an infrastructure that works well, as in cards, but it is not that well suited to what they want to do. You know, cards really work best in terms of low volume, high value payments. And the internet is kind of looking for something different. And actually, it's quite well suited to push payments from banks themselves via ACHs. And interestingly, in some of the underdeveloped markets where cards have less dominance, you do see some interesting use cases starting there first. So Mm. look at India with their UPI system, as a for example. And then the question is, how does Facebook Libra lean into that? Is it going to be more of a cards-based thing or more of a bank push-based mm. thing? That will be fascinating to figure out. And then I look to the members to try and understand more. Yeah, and we've got to be at an inflection point. I mean, the Charge It card, which is the first example of the credit card, I think is coming up to close to its 75th birthday. And we've not moved a great deal forward. I'm sure you've read Natalie Sini's review on a cashless society or not, which is fascinating. We could talk about this all day. In I fact, know, it's a matter for a different one. This maybe is but, part one of more podcasts together. But, but, you know, in one respect, people don't feel that good about plastic at the moment. Yeah. And I know it's a completely different thing, but, you know, consumer trends are crucial to financial services. And I don't think we pay anywhere near enough attention to it. The point you made, start with the customer. What enables innovation in value areas for the customer is critical. Let the customer guide you. Very, very cool. We've got a couple more minutes, a couple lighter questions. The first one, let the customer advise you, is going to segue nicely into who's advised you in your career? Who have been some of your biggest mentors or role models? Do you know what? That's a that's a great question. You didn't tell me to prepare for that one. It's meant to be a natural answer. <laughs> and, and, and do you know, it, it tends to be the people that have hired me into roles yeah. when I really think about it. You know, the people that hired me into Oliver Wyman and into Bridgepoint are the people that also were the friends and family funding round for oh. Commuter Club. You know, I stay very much in touch with the person that hired me into EY. And throughout my career, I think they have a special importance in your life because they are the people that backed you early on and kind of want you to succeed and have known you as you've developed. Therefore, they always have a fascinating perspective on you and your career. Very good sounding boards I've found. Thank you. And final question, you're charging towards September 14th. You're one of the busiest chaps I know. How do you fit everything into a day? Do you have any routines? Do you have any special disciplines? I ask this because I'm trying to work out what mine are and every day <laughs> just falls apart with the moment I get out of bed. So, Productivity is pretty challenging. One golden rule, never go fall behind on emails. Mm-hmm. That's it. I try and clear my inbox every day. I, I, I think I've got six in there at the moment and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> love that. Okay, very, very cool. Imran, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. There's been some incredibly useful takeaways. I've got scribbles of notes in front of me, which I'm going to enjoy reading about later. But I guess there's a few things. The first, both from me and on behalf of Motive Partners, and without sounding too overambitious, I guess on behalf of the UK, is a huge thank you for everything that you've done. And congratulations to have created from mandate to an open standard and an industry standard is something quite incredible to have the irish then take that standard up is incredible validation and we're seeing the ripple effects internationally so it's it's amazing i'm so excited to see where it goes good luck for september the 14th i'm sure that'll be a roaring success as well and um thank you for being on the podcast it's been a real pleasure not at all thank you very much for having me thank you for your time and insights and thank you very much for tuning in 
I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.